A paragraph in a newspaper op-ed reads, quote, It's impossible to hear about the way parties, day camps, and church services have led to outbreaks this summer of COVID-19 without worrying about what will happen if kids and adults gather in the fall. It scares me to think about how many more lives will be lost. It terrifies me that I could be among them, unquote. The op-ed is entitled, I Won't Risk a COVID to Teach Your Child. The words of an educator in Mount Vernon, Washington, writing in the New York Times. Greetings again, I'm Adam Morgan. Parents of school-aged children are currently grappling with one of the most important decisions of their parenting lives, allowing their child to return to school during a pandemic that can not only affect the child, but the entire family as well. The bottom line is, without a healthy child, education really doesn't matter. Various school districts are crafting a range of safety plans in their attempt to return to their classrooms this fall. How to evaluate those health-driven plans to either return to the classroom or continue remote learning at home is the focus of this edition. We ask the pertinent questions seeking insight to Children's Hospital Colorado Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Jessica Pitaldi. The governor of Missouri was uh, saying back there, oh, parents, go on and send your kids to school. Yeah, they're going to catch it, but in the end, uh, you know, nothing's going to happen. They'll be just fine. For some reason, I think there's a lot more to it than that. Kids tend to uh, recover, but are there more side effects maybe that we're not hearing about outside of the, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that can happen? I think you're right that it's it's a little simple to say that, you know, everything will just be fine. We we think it's important for kids to get back to school so that they can learn, but we want to do it in a safe way. And as you mentioned, um, you know, there is a multi-system, uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which we've started to uh, learn more about. Uh, really, April is when we started hearing about that. So that's something that we've actually learned quite a bit about over the past few months, and it's something that we're um, comfortable with diagnosing and working through treatment plans for. And that is a very rare complication that can happen to some children after COVID. But even kids who get COVID and don't get that inflammatory syndrome, some of them can be sick. Um, So particularly kids who have underlying medical problems. um, And that can include kids who have like a weakened immune system from cancer treatment or from having a transplant of an organ um, or kids who have chronic long-term neurologic or uh, respiratory problems. The average kid with asthma um, doesn't have a very high risk of severe disease, but a child who has really bad asthma where they're in and out of the hospital kind of every year with a bad asthma flare should probably talk to their doctor about that risk. So it's certainly not as simple as Every kid's going to be fine. But we do know that kids are much, much, much less likely to end up in the hospital or to get severely ill than adults are. And the last thing that I want people to know is that kids are not all the same, um, and kids of all ages are not all the same. What we've seen is that adolescents, so our teenagers, are really a little bit more like adults when it comes to COVID. So especially adolescents who might have... um, 
another underlying medical problem like uh, obesity or very severe asthma can be at a higher risk of having to be in the hospital for COVID, whereas sure. in younger children, it really is much more rare to get that sick. You're saying the same type of risk factors we think of uh, that can compromise adults, if kids have the same thing, we need to be extra careful with them as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, every family should really talk to their doctor if they're not sure. So if you're not sure what your child's problem is and what the risk is related, um, you should have that conversation to help you decide, you know, how can I keep them safe and, and what will be the best learning plan to do that. I think the other thing to keep in mind there, as you mentioned, like risk factors in adults, you really want to think of what's going on with everybody at home. So maybe... Your kids don't have any medical problems, but maybe you live with a grandparent who's older or maybe somebody in the household does have one of those immune-compromising conditions or does have um, very bad heart disease that could put them at a higher risk. So that's something you'd want to weigh in as well, and I think it's something that a lot of families have been thinking about as they make other decisions during COVID about you know how much they want to be out of the house and, and how many risks they're willing to take. Yes, yes, for sure. And all the stories we've been hearing about young adults being out and then being asymptomatic and bringing it home, but uh, kids can be asymptomatic as well, and that's what you're saying, that even with healthy kids, you have to keep that in mind, that that could possibly occur. Yeah, we do know that... um it's really more often that kids have really mild symptoms or adults have really mild symptoms or that they can be contagious right before they start having symptoms. And as you mentioned, we've, we've seen that in young adults, so people in their 20s and 30s. Um, and again, it's really those adolescents, so our teenagers, thinking about folks who are maybe in high school um, that are able to spread COVID more easily than the younger kids. We don't see younger children spreading it to other people even when they are mildly symptomatic as, oh, okay. as much as we see those older teenagers and adolescents spreading it. Are summer camps a precursor to, uh, uh, to what could happen with regular schools, especially among uh, elementary school children? It's an interesting question. You know, there's a lot of different places we've been trying to look to sort of get a preview. Um, so summer camps, it depends a little bit what kind of camp, how much we can learn from them. So a day camp, um, you know, where kids are together in groups and um, often doing activities outdoors, it gives you some idea, but having those outdoor activities is a little different than sitting in a classroom all day. Right. And then I would say on the other side, sleepaway camps often involve people being in very close quarters, even closer contact than you would be during a normal school day. So sleepaway camps, you know, you're sharing a bunk bed, sharing a room with often many other children, um, you know, sharing meals together, often in a crowded dining hall inside. Um, so that, to me, might be even higher risk than schools. So I, th I think right. you have to kind of take each setting differently. When uh, school districts start sending information to parents as to, okay, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it, what kind of key things should they look for first, like uh, maybe staggered dropping off and picking up procedures or what school buses are going to do? Uh, they really need to really look intently into what's going to happen with their children throughout the entire day, I would think. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to frame it, is kind of thinking from the very beginning to the end of the day. 
um, and thinking about both transportation, time at school, and then also for families who might um, take advantage of before or after school services, whether that's additional um, child care or activities that kids might usually participate in, thinking about those things. So if we start in the morning, um, really one thing you want to look for is symptom screening. So really we recommend that all schools and child cares uh, and workplaces actually have some sort of plan for everybody checking in with themselves every day saying, do I have any symptoms? Does my child have any symptoms before I send them to school? And so that might look different for every school. It might be, you know, something that you have to send in um, from your phone or online or it might be a phone call or it might be just a checklist that you run through and then know that if they don't clear that checklist, they can't go to school that day. But that's really that's important. Idea, having a checklist, putting a checklist together. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I think every place will be different, but you could see having like kind of a laminated checklist or something on your fridge that you can look at every day. Um, and those symptoms that we're looking for are really, you know, cough, difficulty breathing, fever, but also symptoms like vomiting, diarrhea, um, severe muscle aches. Those are ones that are people don't think of quite as much with COVID, but can be a sign of COVID. And also, if you're vomiting and it's not COVID, we probably don't want you at school either. Trying to really keep people who are sick home as much as possible. And uh that's how we really keep everyone safe, and it's important that families can see that their school is doing that, and also that families take that seriously as a way that they'll help protect other families at the school, and the other families are helping protect them. So that's before you go to school. And then right. thinking about transportation is important. Um, Transportation is one of the more challenging things when we think about how crowded school buses can be. There's ways to improve by kind of having kids sit together with um, siblings, for example. It may not be what every kid wants to do, but if you're going to have to be close to somebody on the bus, being close to somebody you live with, keeping on those cloth face coverings or masks while you're on the bus, and then trying to leave as much space as possible. So you mentioned like staggered start times, and that's one way that some schools are looking at it is could we do a staggered start time that helps us have fewer people crowding the entrance of the building at the same time, but also allows for multiple transportation runs where you could space kids out. So that's something to look for, but again, there are those things you can do even on a bus um, to help with the risk, like face coverings, keeping the windows on the bus open when the weather allows for that um, can also help. With some parents, um, they would probably think, well, if I drive my, my son or daughter to school, that may be a lot more safe than putting on the school bus where uh, some other parents may not be taking the same precautions, and it it. it tends to be, I wouldn't say Russian roulette, but there is a high degree of trust you got to have that other parents are taking the precautions too because that's going to be the first place the kids are going to be in the middle of another group where things can be spread. Yeah, and that's right, and I think it's huge to point out that element of trust, and that's why it's really important that schools, families, parents, and teachers are all taking this seriously because it's important and, you know, we have to rely on each other. Um, 
you mentioned driving in, and I think that that can be a good option for some families if they've got that access to transportation and if that works for the schedule. And, you know, that might also help free up some space on the bus for other families who don't have that option. Um, either way, getting that symptoms check before you put your kid on the bus or before you get in the car is important because we don't want kids to get to school and then realize they're sick. For parents driving in, the other thing that schools will probably be asking is that you're not going to come inside to drop your kid off. So um, for younger kids, sometimes that's, that's hard to say, all right, I'm going to leave you here outside the door. But we really want only the people who need to be in the school building in the school building. And then once you're there, um, so we can think about kind of the individual things that are asked of people and then also how the school's organized. So for the individual things, hand washing, wearing face coverings, kind of the simple things we've been talking about since March. Um, and uh, face coverings will be a little different by each school. We know that um, everybody over 10 needs to be wearing a face covering when they're out of the house now in Colorado. Um, right. But plenty of kids under 10 can safely and comfortably wear a face mask during the day as well. Should a parent uh, practice with a child wearing the face mask? Yeah, I think that that's a great idea, and that's exactly what I've been recommending to families is, yeah. you know, practice to get used to it, but also so that kids start to see it as normal. You know, the more we see people out and about or see people on TV or online with pictures of wearing masks, wearing face coverings, it helps uh -huh. kids get used to it, that that's what's expected. This is going to be a part of our life for a while now, and, you know, it, it's normal, and everybody's doing it. Um, mm -hmm. There's some things you can do to try and kind of make it fun, too, so that the kid can pick their own mask and, and choose Yeah, like. well, that would do it. They'd get in the classroom, and everybody would see each other with a different kind of mask on, and they'd be home, Mommy, why can't I have a Mickey Mouse mask? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and schools have, like, theme days. You could have, you know, whatever your special mask is. You get to wear that one on Friday. You know, I, th I think there's ways, again, to, to incorporate it into part of daily life for kids. Um, right. And practicing is a great idea in, in practicing now. Should um, a parent put the hand sanitizer in with the school supply? So that's something I would check with the school on, um, just because some schools might have rules about, like, what you're able to bring in um, and what kind of things you're able to keep at a desk or locker. But definitely we want to make sure that everybody's washing hands or sanitizing hands frequently once they're at school. Those are kind of the individual things we want to make sure people do. So they're going to okay. check their symptoms, they're going to wash their hands, they're going to wear their face coverings, and then what's the school doing? So how are they changing the way things are organized? And I think that's where a lot of parents are wondering what's going on. Dr. Jessica Cataldi, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado. Our focus is supporting parents to determine the health, safety, of returning their children to school or remote learning again at home. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Cataldi on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And many, many thanks to you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.